You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will discuss the Circleville Letters. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Mysteries Still Unsolved. The weather is finally, finally, finally warming up where I live, and I could not be more excited. My allergies, on the other hand, not so much. Isn't that such a double-edged sword? We don't have allergies during the winter because everything is dead, and then as soon as there's a glimmer of hope and greenery in the world... I can't even enjoy it 100% because my mind is foggy and my face is clogged up. It's so not fair, but I will take it. I will gladly accept a little bit of the sniffles if it means that the sun is finally going to come out. It has been one of the longest winters of my life. Thank you all so much for the feedback that I received about last week's episode. I'm so glad that you guys enjoyed it. If you haven't had a chance to listen to it, we discussed the real men in black, which if you're anything like me, you did not even know that the movies were inspired by real life encounters with a secret agency. So we talked about a couple of those stories and it's incredibly interesting. I even posted a photo that was taken back in 1968 and a video from 2008 on on my Instagram at mystery still unsolved shameless plug so after you're done listening to this episode go back and listen to that one because you seriously will not be disappointed today we will discuss the Circleville letters and the reason I wanted to discuss this case specifically today is that April Fool's is just around the corner and I think that the case we're going to discuss today easily may have begun a sort of a prank. And not that I think that they were trying to be funny, but I think that maybe they just didn't realize the implications that sending out a couple of letters would snowball into. Maybe they were just venting and they thought letters aren't going to hurt anyone. And then it quickly spiraled out of control. So let us all take notes on this case about what not to do this upcoming April Fool's Day. And how about let's stick to toothpaste Oreos and, you know, that rubber band around the spray hose on the sink. Those are much less sinister and much less dangerous than what I'm about to tell you. So without further delay, let's get to it. Mary, a school bus driver, had had enough. Even though she had a bus loaded to the brim with students who were going bananas, she pulled over that school bus as she passed by her house. The students were quite confused as she exited the bus and snatched a piece of paper that had been fastened to her door. Mary read the contents of the letter and her face felt hot. She was sure it was turning the color of a ripe Roma tomato. She ripped the paper into what felt like a million pieces and let the wind carry it on its way. She stormed back onto the bus and started it up again without saying a single word to anyone. In 1976, several Circleville, Ohio residents began receiving strange letters detailing personal information about their lives. But Mary Gillipsy 
seemed to be the intended target as she received the brunt of the harassment. In the letters, Mary was accused of supposedly having an affair with the superintendent of the schools that she bussed for. The first letter Mary received accused her of the following, quote, stay away from Massey. Don't lie when questioned about knowing him. I know where you live. I've been observing your home and I know you have children. This is not a joke. Please take this seriously. Everyone concerned has been notified and everything will be over soon, end quote. But Mary was confused. She, of course, knew the superintendent since she worked for the district, but she wasn't having an affair with him. She was happily married to her husband, and she did have children. At first, the letters didn't really worry her. She assumed that the letter must have been intended for someone else and it had been delivered to her home by mistake. But then, another letter came. This time, addressing her by name. So there was no mistake. The letters were postmarked Columbus, Ohio, but there was never a return address. Within eight days, Mary had received yet another letter. At first, she kept the letters to herself until her loving husband, Ron, received a letter of his very own at work. The letter stated that if Ron would not stop his wife from having her salacious illicit affair by reporting it to the school board, his very life would be in danger. After two weeks, the writer threatened both Mary and Ron that if the affair did not stop, they would go public with the allegations, broadcasting the intimate details on radios, billboards, and television. Mary and Ron had only told three people about the letters, Ron's sister, her husband Paul, and Paul's sister. Two weeks later, Ron received another letter. It read, quote, Gillipsy, you have had two weeks and you have done nothing. Admit what has taken place or else I will broadcast the dirty secret on CBS, posters, signs, and billboards until the truth is known to everyone, end quote. Mary racked her brain, wondering who might have something against her or who might want to wreck her reputation, and she was able to come up with a few ideas on who might be sending these letters. After narrowing it down to one person, they decided to have Paul, who was Ron's sister's husband, write letters to their number one suspect, David Longberry. David Longberry was a co-worker of Mary's who had recently become infatuated with her. He had, you know, tried a couple of advancements and she had turned him down. Paul wrote letters and claimed to know that they were the ones responsible for the letters. And their plan seemed to work because the letters did stop for several weeks. But it didn't last long. Soon, there were signs up all over town accusing Mary and Massey of having an affair. Some of the signs even insinuated that Mary had allowed Massey to sexually assault their 12-year-old daughter as some sort of foreplay. For weeks, Ron woke up at 5 a.m., the crack of dawn, to drive around town and remove the signs before anyone could see them to protect his young daughter. Ron's patience was thinning. On August 19, 1977, Ron received a phone call from the writer, and Ron recognized the voice. Ron grabbed his gun and left in his pickup truck. He didn't care that the caller said he was watching his home or the truck. 
Ron wanted to put an end to the writer's ridiculous claims. Ron was tired of being harassed, and he was tired of this person harassing his wife, Mary. He knew that Mary was not being unfaithful to him. He wanted the writer to stop the accusations involving his young daughter, too. What kind of a sick person would make up something like that? It was time to make the writer behind the Circleville letters pay. A few minutes later, however, Ron was found dead in his pickup truck. It had crashed into a tree on the way to the writer's home. Investigators later learned that Ron had fired a single shot from his gun before crashing his vehicle. Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe questioned and eliminated at least one suspect. He ruled Ron's death an accident, claiming that Ron had lost control of the vehicle and crashed while driving drunk. But everyone who knew about the letters knew that that couldn't be true. They knew that as Ron had attempted to exact his revenge on the writer, the writer had executed their promise from the first letter when they threatened Ron's life. After the crash and the subsequent cause of death was made official, several other residents of the town received letters stating that Sheriff Radcliffe had been involved in a cover-up. According to Paul, Mary, and Ron's brother-in-law, Sheriff Radcliffe initially agreed with them that the death had been foul play, and then to hear that the official ruling was crash due to drunk driving was like a slap in the face. Ron had been drunk at the time. They could not deny that. I mean, the coroner's report noted that Ron's blood alcohol content was 0.16, but they just knew, especially after learning that Ron had shot his gun once, that there had to have been an altercation between the two. Maybe as the writer fled the scene and Ron attempted to follow them, that that was actually what had caused the accident. In 1983, years after Ron's death, again, Mary began to be harassed, this time along her bus route. This time, instead of sending letters, now the writer was placing threatening signs all over town along the side of the road on her bus route. One day, Mary had had enough, and she decided to stop the bus and rip the sign down. When she did, she discovered a booby trap designed to kill her. The trap had a box which contained a small pistol. If Mary had pulled the sign a different way, the gun would have fired. An attempt was made to rub off the serial number of the gun, but the attempt was amateur at best. When lab tests were able to raise the number, it was determined that the gun belonged to none other than Paul Frischauer, Mary and Ron's brother-in-law. Paul had recently divorced from Ron's sister. Paul, however, explained that there was a perfectly logical explanation for all of this. You see, he claimed, that the gun had recently been stolen from his home. Mm, okay. On February 25th, 1983, Sheriff Radcliffe asked Paul to meet with him and take a handwriting test. He asked Paul to try and copy the blocky handwriting from the letters. After the test, Paul took the sheriff to the place in his garage where he kept his guns. After returning to the police station, Paul was promptly arrested and charged with the attempted murder of Mary. On October 24, 1983, he went on trial. Although he was never charged with writing the letters, they did become a crucial part of the evidence against him. A handwriting expert testified that Paul was the letter writer. 
Mary also testified that she and Ron had believed that he was the writer after Paul's wife had shared with them some of her suspicions. Paul's boss also testified that Paul had not worked on the day that the booby trap was found. Paul had an alibi for most of the day, however, but that alibi refused to take the stand in his defense. Proclaiming his innocence, Paul was sentenced to 7 to 25 years in prison. The town of Circleville was elated. They felt they could finally breathe a sigh of relief with the author of the letters behind bars. However, the letters did not stop. In fact, the letters grew more and more and more bizarre. The writer threatened to dig up the bones of a recently deceased infant and send the remains to the police if they wouldn't investigate into Roger Klein, the prosecutor of the case. The writer claimed that Roger Klein had murdered a pregnant schoolteacher. Paul himself received letters from the writer while in prison, taunting him and promising to keep him in there forever. Residents continued to receive letters while Paul was held in solitary confinement. The letters continued to be postmarked in Columbus, Ohio, even though Paul was in prison in Lima, Ohio. When in solitary confinement, prisoners do not have letter-writing privilege, so that's why it is particularly strange that, they kept, that the letters kept arriving to the townspeople of Circleville. In December 1990, Paul finally became eligible for parole but he was denied parole due to the letters, even though there was literally no possible way that he could have been sending them. In May 1994, Paul was finally paroled. He maintained his innocence up until his death in 2012. The letters stopped in 1994. To this day, the author of these letters remains unknown. Martin Yant, a journalist, decided to investigate the case as it had seriously piqued so many interests, including his own. Yant believed that the letters were initially written by David Longberry, the man that we talked about who had become infatuated with Mary. It is believed that this is the home Ron was driving to when he crashed into a tree and died. However, after that, Yant believes that Karen, Ron's own sister, took over from there as a copycat. Yacht believed that Karen was, quote, an angry and manipulative woman, end quote, that was capable of planting negative stories even about her own sister-in-law and niece in order to frame her ex-husband, Paul, who had received sole custody of their children and kept their family home in the divorce proceedings. So, we should probably now talk about the yellow El Camino. So the morning the booby trap was set for Mary, another bus driver driving down the same route noticed a suspicious man on the side of the road next to a yellow El Camino. After learning about the attempt on Mary's life, he reported what he saw to the police. The police didn't really look into it at all. Because if they had, they would have discovered that Paul's ex-wife, Karen, had just begun dating a new man, and this man had access to a yellow El Camino. Before the attempt on Mary's life, Karen had apparently met up with her ex's sister and asked to borrow Paul's typewriter as she was going to be writing a book. Although Paul's sister found that quite odd as Karen had never mentioned any interest in writing before, she let her have it. Many of the letters after Ron's death used a typewriter. 
From 1976 to 1994, thousands of letters were sent supposedly from the Circleville writer. Is it possible that this person wrote so many letters in order to throw off the investigation? Or is it possible that while it may have initially began with one or maybe even two writers, the town of Circleville became a town of copycats? Is it possible that any time a Circleville citizen had a qualm about their neighbor, they would send a threatening letter under the guise of the Circleville writer? Yant believes that Paul was not at all involved in the letters, but was unfortunately framed for it. There are also rumors that Mary Gillipsey herself was behind the letters. Many claim that she got the dirt she needed to write the letters about her neighbors from conversations that she had eavesdropped between the children on her bus route. There was even a movie written about this very theory called Drunk History. Despite this evidence and the reasonable doubt that it creates, the police in Circleville still maintain that Paul is the mastermind behind the Circleville letters. But guys, what if it wasn't Paul? If that's the case, then this seriously twisted individual has gotten away with terrorizing an entire town of citizens for decades. And that's the case of the Circleville letters. In a beyond major plot twist, Mary and the superintendent later acknowledged a relationship, but they both claim that the affair did not start until after the letters were sent and Ron had passed away. Yeah, I don't really know if I believe that for a second, but I figured that I'd bring it up anyway. So who do you think is behind the circle of the letters? Do you think it was David Longberry, the co-worker who was obsessed with Mary? Do you think it was Paul Freshour? Do you believe in Yant's theory that Longberry started it and that Karen took advantage of it in order to frame her ex-husband? Or do you think it was Mary herself all along? Let me know by commenting on the post I posted today on my Instagram at Unsolved. Thank you all so much for your continued support. I greatly appreciate it. Um, if you want to support the podcast further, you can follow us on Instagram. You can check out our website at mysterystillunsolved.com. Leave the podcast a review. A good one, please and thank you. <laughs> and also you can share with a friend. Um, I hope that you guys have a very happy April Fool's Day filled with laughter that is innocent and not sinister like these letters. I hope to see you back here next week when together we'll discover did someone ever place a useful tip has justice prevailed or is the mystery still unsolved